this Sunday, we're thinking about mission. Is that a core commitment, value, characteristic of a disciple-making and growing church and person is someone who is, yeah, valued and committed to, to mission. And uh, Jenny, thanks for being up here with me. Um, we're going to get to know you just a little bit more. Are you working? Yeah. And just hearing a little bit about just who you are and your uh, experience with uh, getting on mission with us here at Southside. Uh, so before we get to talk about mission and um, your experience of that, uh, firstly, just tell us, uh, who is Jenny? <laughs> um, so I'm Jenny. I'm married to Joe and I'm mum of Azaria and Elijah. Um, that's mostly it. I teach music and that's pretty much all I do. <laughs> you teach music? Yeah. <laughs> so my wife went to your baby's what, what is it called? Oh, the Lullaby Project. The Lullaby Project. <laughs> and <laughs> it was awesome because she came home and she said how music actually builds connection yep, with yep. one another. Yeah, definitely. And I was just thinking, man, what a, just for us singing this morning, what a beautiful yeah. experience of building connection with God through song. But oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was last week. That was mag. We're talking about mission this morning. Yep. Um, <laughs> but so, awesome. Thanks for sharing <laughs> no worries. a bit about that. Um, and so you've... You've joined in, you've been a part of some of the mission events around church, particularly the life course. Yeah. Can you tell us your experience of kind of just being a part of that? Yep. Um, so I went to the life course in term one or two, I forget. Um, uh, and it was six weeks on a Tuesday night um, and it was so great. Um, ben was leading it and like if you like Ben's preaching, like as a life course leader, he just shines guys he was so great um and so basically it was the sort of a really casual setup we'd um sit and ben would um teach us a little bit uh and then we'd sit in groups and chat and discuss real life stuff and questions of belief and life and pain and uh what pain means what god means and how it all works and makes sense it was it was a really really well done course um, and I went with a friend of mine, um, but I got so much out of it as a Christian. I found it so nourishing for myself. Um, and I really appreciated that um, people who didn't bring a friend still came um, because they were able to talk to my friend and witness to her and build relationship with her. So it was, it was just a really great chance to uh, focus back in on the gospel um, for myself and to think it through again and again and um, and share it with a friend and share it with other brothers and sisters. So it was really great. <laughs> awesome. You just said a, so much awesome stuff there. So I'm going to break it down. <laughs> so you inv- you said you invited a friend. Yeah. Um, how did how did they find it? Uh, she really liked it. She didn't manage to finish it because her little boy got sick. Um, but um, I think she would probably come back if she could. Um, she really liked it. She made friends and um, it was really easy for her to think through the questions. They were presented in a really clear step-by-step way. And, um, yeah, I think she really enjoyed it. Mm. Yeah, That's awesome. And so just for you, like inviting a friend, uh, it can be sometimes daunting to invite someone to a church event. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you just to push into inviting someone to church so to be honest it was easier because I knew that she was interested but um and I think 
you know, if you're going cold, something like yesterday's event for women or the coming event for the guys was a really easy thing. I invited quite a few friends. Only one was able to come. But it was really easy to invite friends to that. And then they get connected and meet people. Um, and then after that, it was really easy to invite her to the life course. Um, and she didn't think I was weird. She didn't bite my head off. Um, the worst thing they'll say is no, like, yeah, and there's the chance that you'll save their souls. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing your experience with that. And uh, so you talked a little bit about how we could, as a church, partner together and be involved in mission. Can you just share a bit more about yeah, what you were sharing before? Uh, about how we can all... Yeah, just oh what yeah. it looks like for us to partner together. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, like um, our outreach events, like the women's and men's events, but also things like um, play group for the mums um, are a really, really easy thing that we've set up to help you invite people to church. Um, it's not intimidating for them. Um, it gets them through the door. It gets them to meet people who love God and they can build more relationships with people who love God. So you can invite friends to that or if you go to those things, you can make a real effort to seek out new people and talk to them and ask things. Uh, what do you, Is this your first time coming to church? What do you think of church? Like it's sometimes easier for a new person to ask that than an established friend. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, don't just feel like if you're in a season of life where it's hard, you don't have any non-Christian friends, um, don't think you can't contribute. You can be uh, a support to someone else who is inviting Christ non-Christians to church. Um, and same mm. for the life course. Go If you don't have someone to take, still go and meet people and encourage them and help them to find Jesus. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for that encouragement. And so um, you also mentioned too, as you've been a part of just doing mission together, um, that God's been drawing you closer to Jesus. Can you yeah. share a little bit about what that's been like for you? Oh, yeah. I found um, when I was doing the life course especially, I found it really, um, yeah, it just showed me fresh perspectives on the gospel and it drew me back to the gospel and everything is about the gospel. That's why we're here um, and just refocusing, reorbiting yourself on the gospel, um, is it was really good for me. And it was getting me thinking about non-Christians and the questions were so um, directed to people who don't have that hope of salvation. And it was both helping me uh, nourish my faith and also see the urgency of sharing the gospel with people who don't have that gift yet. So I found it really helpful in focusing me on mission and helping me want to do it. Yeah, it's amazing how the gospel actually is both for those who don't know Jesus yet and for us for us who do. And it yeah. Yeah, it grows us both Absolutely. more to towards Jesus. Yeah, we can't, there's, you know, as Christians, there's nothing deeper or there's no extra bonus levels of maturity. It's all about the gospel and we've just got to keep soaking ourselves in it. So the life course was really good for me in that as well. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's thank you. That's yeah, really no helpful. Worries. Uh, so you are going to read the Bible for us now. Yep. Um, before you do that, we'd love to pray for you yep. and, and with you. Um, do, can we do that for you? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your grace to us in Jesus, that you have brought the gospel to us and you've caused us to believe uh, in the good news of Jesus and that you've made us your sons and daughters. And thank you that that is true of Jenny. Father, thank you that you have been working in her drawing her closer to Jesus, but also through her and showing that love uh, and commitment to her friends to draw them also 
to know uh, just a little bit more about Jesus. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with Jenny, building her up into Jesus, and that you continue to be using her to reach uh, those who you've placed in her life, that they might know and come to love and follow Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you. All right, so this morning we're reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 18. If you've got a church Bible, you can find it on page 985. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Uh, Good morning. Uh, It's good to be here today uh, as we do this. Something I just want to point out before we get into uh, this passage uh, that we've been looking at through this series in The Dangerous Vision. There's some pictures on the back of our uh, stage here today that you may have seen through your growth group books. If you haven't, uh, these pictures represent five things, five elements of what it means to be a church and five things it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, in the front of your growth group books, if you've seen them, we've got this uh, picture that kind of draws them all together. It's a pentagon and uh, we call it an ecosystem. Now, I don't know much about ecosystems, but I asked my growth group about them this week and they said, they confirmed this with me, that if you take one thing out of the ecosystem, then all of the things kind of fall apart. And when we think about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a church, all of these things are important. So last week we looked at magnification. This week we're looking at mission. Next week we're going to be looking at membership, maturity after that, and then ministry. Uh, That's where we're going and we're looking at how all of these things are important for us as a church and for us individuals. So it's my joy to speak about the best M this morning, mission. 
I say that with my tongue in cheek, but uh, I am quite convinced by that. So we'll see if the passage helps us, if God helps us with that. Let's pray and then we'll get into uh, this passage. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much, Lord, that we can gather together today. Um, Father, as we've been singing about, we thank you that there is grace for us. We thank you that you are for us, that you are with us. God, we pray that now, this morning, that you would be here, that you would challenge us, that you would shape us, that you would change us, and that you would give us a burden, Lord, a burden for mission, that you would break our hearts with what breaks yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I don't know if you've uh, noticed this lately, but for me, it feels like on TV and on Netflix that more and more as a society, we are becoming addicted to crime documentaries, right? I, I don't know if you've been a part of that, if you've seen that, but every single thing that seems to take off these days on Netflix or stand whatever it is seems to be a crime documentary or a crime miniseries. For me, um, my issue is the more that I watch these, the less I actually enjoy them. That's my problem. And yet, like a dog returning to its vomit, I keep going back. Um, But the last one that we watched, I think, was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. We sat down, Elizabeth and I, a few weeks ago, we sat down and we watched uh, the new miniseries called When They See Us. I don't know if you you know about this or you've seen this, but according to one website, despite it only being released at the end of May, this has now quickly become the second most watched show on Netflix in 2019. Uh, When They See Us is a crime uh, documentary, a reenactment of what took place in 1989 in uh, the events that followed the, uh, something that took place in Brooklyn Park, I think it is, uh, in, or Central Park, sorry, in New York. Uh, it follows the events that took place after that event. Uh, and this show, When They See Us, is all about five teenage boys who admitted to committing to a crime they didn't commit. Right, like that's kind of the whole show. It's all about following the journey of these five boys, these teenagers, who were coerced into admitting they committed a horrible, uh, horrible crime in these brutal, unethical uh, ways that as you're sitting there, the injustice just feels too much. Now, we sat down interested to watch this show. We sat down, uh, it's four, uh, there's four one-hour uh, mini-series. That's kind of what it goes for. We sat down, we watched the first one, and just over halfway through the first one, we had to stop. We actually had to stop watching this show because for both of us, right, it wasn't that, you know, the storyline was boring, it wasn't that it was too graphic. I can't speak for the rest of the show, right, maybe it is. But for us, we had to stop watching this because as we were watching teenagers, right, like 14 to 16-year-olds be coerced into admitting a crime in the most unethical and brutal ways, it was actually just too sad to watch. The injustice in that moment, as you're watching these police that are meant to kind of, you know, be the kings of justice, and yet they're here in this moment, and they're looking to these boys, and they're they're coercing them to admitting this crime. So, So we had to stop. Now, my issue with this, and I don't know if you've had this experience as well, Um, But my problem when I watch this is that it raises a big question for me. And it's not a question why, as a society, we like this stuff, although that is a good question to ask. The question that comes up for me is, as I see this, like, unimaginable injustice, this evil taking place, 
I'm wondering if God sees that. And if God does see that, why doesn't he do something about it? Why doesn't God deal with the evil and the injustice that exists, not just on Netflix, but in the world, in real people's lives? Why doesn't God fix the world? Why doesn't God fix this place? Why doesn't he get rid of evil and get rid of everything stained by evil? Why doesn't God deal with it? Well, well, I don't know if you heard it read out for us before, but what we see in this passage is that God actually speaks into that. God actually addresses this exact question as we look at it, uh, why he hasn't dealt with injustice and evil and suffering. And we see it as we read 2 Peter chapter 3, where we had read out for us before. It will be on the screen as well. But God speaks into this, and, and Peter is saying this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to the new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Why hasn't God dealt with injustice and evil and suffering? Peter here speaks into this and he says he will. God will deal with evil. He will deal with injustice. He will deal with suffering. He will wipe tears from our eyes. God will do this. And he will do it on what is called the day of the Lord. Right? I don't know if you picked that up in that passage there, if you felt the weight of that, but Peter refers to this a number of times. So, so just to highlight the day of the Lord there, we see at verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The Lord has not forgotten about the day of the Lord. Verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will be destroyed. The elements will be destroyed. That's like the heavens and the earth. Everything will be destroyed. Verse 11, he says, since this day is coming, how should you live? Verse 12, he says, as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed is coming along for the day that will bring about destruction. And then verse 13, he talks about it again as he says, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth. Peter here speaks about the day when God will deal with injustice, when he will deal with evil, when he will deal with suffering, and God will do that on what is called the day of the Lord. We see this right throughout the Bible. It's the judgment day of God, where God will fix everything that's broken. He will make all things new. He will make a new heavens and a new earth. It will be beautiful and wonderful, but it's going to come about through destruction and fire. Peter talks about the day of the Lord here. He says he will deal with this stuff. Now, now, as you hear that, as you kind of read Peter's words there and reflect on the day of the Lord, how does that kind of make you feel? Right? What's your gut reaction as you see this? What thoughts run through your head? Because for me, when I think about my emotions as I read this passage and as I think about the day of the Lord, emotionally, I'm a little bit confused here. I don't really know how to feel. Because as Peter describes the day of the Lord, it's both good news and bad news, right? It's like a really good thing that he's going to deal with evil, but then it's going to happen through fire and, and, and destruction. As I read Peter's words here, I feel uneasy. 
It's kind of like um, we watched another crime documentary uh, called uh, On Ted Bundy, when Ted Bundy was, all that hype was about him. If you don't know who he is, he's, um, to be honest, I mean, watching this documentary, I was watching one of the most horrific people who have done the most horrific crimes. Maybe this is why I'm sick of this genre. It's just like we keep going back and just makes you feel off. But um, anyway, Ted Bundy got to the end of his life. We were watching this documentary, and it was a reenactment, but one of those ones where they tie in real uh, footage of what happened. And um, at the end of his life, he got convicted for a bunch of murders and other stuff, and he ended up getting the death penalty. And in this show on Ted Bundy, you're watching him in this electric chair, and then um, the, the filmmakers did it so well, so they don't show you his death, but they show you people's reaction. And so you know that he's facing the death penalty, um, you know that, they, um, they, that he dies, and it shows you the reaction, and everyone watching cheers, right? They, they clap. And then they come out of the prison where it was, and everyone, like the media's gathered around, and everyone's celebrating by what's happening. And as you watch that, it's like, it's, it makes me feel uneasy because it's like it's a good thing, obviously, that evil's been dealt with, but none of it's really that good, right? Like, it's, he caused so much evil. It's this moment you kind of don't know how to feel as you watch it. We both just, Elizabeth and I both just felt uneasy watching it. Now, I'm not saying that the day of the Lord is exactly like that, but how I feel when I think about Peter writing it, it just makes me feel uneasy because it's, it's good news that God will deal with evil. It's good news that God has not forgotten. And for those who face injustice, that, that God will deal with that on judgment day, but he's going to do it through fire and, and, and destruction. And, and as we read this, I feel uneasy, and I also think this is how we're supposed to feel. There's this sense in which we're actually, this is meant to stop us in our tracks and help and make us feel uneasy because the way that Peter talks about the day of the Lord, judgment day, is in line with how we see judgment day or the day of the Lord spoken about through the rest of the Bible. See, throughout the whole Bible, the Old Testament into the New, what we see when, when this theme, the day of the Lord, comes up, it's both a warning and an encouragement at the same time. So on the one hand, it's a warning, but on the other hand, at the exact same time, it's an encouragement. So I just want to quickly go on this journey a little bit through the Old Testament, through some of the prophets when they speak about the day of the Lord, to give us a sense of the weightiness of what we're talking about here. So I'm going to pick three, despite it coming up uh, a lot of times, but the first one's in Isaiah, and we'll start with this warning. So sense this warning. In Isaiah chapter 34, he talks about this warning of the day of the Lord. Now, notice this. He begins in chapter 34. Uh, and Isaiah, to set the context, was a prophet speaking the words of God to the nation of Israel. And he says this, Come near, you nations, and listen. Pay attention, you peoples. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is on all their armies. The God who made the universe is angry. Feel the weight of this. And then when is this coming? When is Isaiah talking about? Well, verse 8, we see this in chapter 34. He says this, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's cause. Isaiah is looking forward to a day when God will deal with evil. 
where he will pour out his wrath and it will be just and it will be perfect and those who have done evil, who have evil lying in our hearts will face the just punishment for what lies deep within us. Then again, as we keep moving through the Bible, we get this again in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 2, like Isaiah, was a prophet speaking the words of God. Now notice this in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7 of uh, Ezekiel. Actually, we'll go to verse 3. He says this, The end has come. Upon the four corners of the land, the end is now upon you, and I will unleash my anger against you. And then listen to this. He says, I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. Ezekiel 2, like Isaiah, was pointing forward to this day, the day of the Lord, when God will deal with evil perfectly. And then he says this in verse 19. They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will be treated as a thing unclean. Their silver and gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Speaking again about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment where God will deal with evil and on that day money isn't going to help anyone. Now you get this over and over again in the prophets. Amos talks about this. Joel talks about this. Zephaniah talks about this. Zechariah talks about this. Jeremiah talks about All the prophets talk about the day of the Lord. But then we get one final one in the last prophet of the Old Testament, in the last book of the Old Testament, in the last chapter of the Old Testament, in Malachi. He too was a prophet speaking the words of God. And he said this in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left there. You feel the weight of the Old Testament speaking about the day of the Lord? It's a warning. God will deal with evil. God will deal with injustice. God will deal with what lies deep within us. And on that day, God will deal with the evil of Ted Bundy. God will deal with the evil of police who coerce teenagers into admitting something they didn't do. And God will deal with the evil that lies in us. Right from the the big stuff to the little stuff that we do, God will deal on the day of the Lord with all evil. And we will face the just punishment of God for what we've done wrong. But see, the day of the Lord is not just a day of warning. It's also a day of hope, a day of encouragement. It's both of these things at exactly the same time. And what's interesting as you work through the prophets, you actually see this, right? When they talk about the day of the Lord, the day when God will judge, the day when God will um, make all those who force injustice things happen to pay, when God judges and deals with evil, it's also a day of encouragement and hope. And these prophets speak about this day as well. Right now, you can read this for yourself if you go through the journey of the prophets, but I just want to highlight one, and it's this last one in Malachi. See, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, he's talking about this day. He says, it will burn. No one will survive on this day. Not a root or a branch will survive. But then listen to verse 2. He says, but you, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. The day of the Lord is a day of warning. God will judge the world, but it's also a day of encouragement. Because for those who are in the name of the Lord, who hide under the name of the Lord, who revere the name of the Lord, Malachi points to the fact that there is healing for them. Right? He says, as the sunrise, you can kind of picture it. I guess we felt this this morning with the cold weather. If you were up early enough, the sun comes through the trees. It is like healing when the sun hits us on a cold day. 
This is kind of the experience on that day. We will experience healing. We will go out like well-fed calves. Now, I've never seen a well-fed calf frolic, but I imagine it's good. I don't know. Hopefully next week, in some sense, I will frolic, but from eating well-fed calves, um, sorry, um, <laughs> that's Saturday's thing. But, but you see, right, sense, feel the encouragement of Malachi, feel that, sense that, right? He's saying, yes, it's warning, but it's also an encouragement. Now, why is the day of the Lord an encouragement? Like, obviously, we get it's an encouragement because God's going to deal with evil, Right, like obviously the day when God deals with injustice is a good day. But how is it a good day for me? Because I have evil lying within my heart. Well, well Malachi only knew this in part, but we know in full, and it's because of another day of the Lord. Not the final day of the Lord, but another day where God poured out his judgment. And that day was the day of the cross. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he was the innocent one. He was the one who had no evil lying in his heart. There was nothing wrong. He never spoke a wrong word. He never felt a wrong emotion. He never thought the wrong thing. He was perfect. He was innocent. And yet, he had the death penalty. He faced death. Now, we see exactly what he was doing in his journey to the uh, cross. The night before Jesus died, he went to, the, um, to, to the, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed these three, this three prayer, the same prayer, three times. And that prayer, he was praying to God the Father, and he was saying, God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. If it's possible, take this cup from me. And what he was doing in that moment was talking, again, about Old Testament imagery. It's the cup of wrath. He's saying, if I don't have to drink this, if I don't have to face judgment, the judgment for evil, if there's any other way that innocent people, that guilty people can go free, if there's any other way, find that way. He prayed it three times, but there was no other way. And so Jesus went to the cross, the innocent one went to the cross, and he died, he faced the death penalty so that the guilty could go free. This is how Malachi's words are true. This is how on the day of the Lord, it can be a day of healing. Because on the day of the Lord, either we will face the just punishment of God for what we've done, or we will hide in the name of Jesus. And if we hide in the name of Jesus, that day will be a day of healing. That day will be a day of encouragement. And so when we feel the weight then of the day of the Lord, when we sense this, we see it's both good news and bad news. And as we read that, it should actually make us feel a little bit uneasy. Now, the, the question is, if that's what the day of the Lord is, is, if that's what Peter is talking about here, why hasn't God come back yet? Why hasn't Jesus come back and judged the world? Why hasn't the day of the Lord happened? Well, we saw that in Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, he says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. He's basically saying that God is outside of time. He's not in time like we are. He's outside of time. But then verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, on the day of the Lord, 
we will face God's just punishment for our sin. And for those who do, for those who have evil in our hearts, whether little moments or big things, we will face the just punishment of God and the consequence of that is hell. Or on the day of the Lord, it will be good news because we will hide in the name of Jesus. And on that day, Jesus, taking the punishment for us, will step in our place. He stepped in our place. And on that day, we can know the future hope of heaven. What Peter says is, the reason the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet is because God is being patient, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to go to hell, but everyone to come to repentance because his repentance leads to salvation. This is what Peter says. This is the reason the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. The reason God hasn't come back and judged the world is because God is being patient. Now again, as we kind of let that stuff flow over us, as we think about the day of the Lord and God's patience, again, the question is, how does this make us feel? What thoughts run through our head for people living in 2019 in Australia? See, see, my guess is it's going to be a bit different to the people Peter's writing to. I mean, Ross talked a few weeks ago about how uh, there's some kind of research that almost suggests that um, in Australia or places like Australia now in 2019, that we actually live in one of the best places in history. Now, um, it's hard to argue that, I think. Brisbane is amazing. Winters in Brisbane are awesome, right? I mean, it's cold today, right? Like, that, how good is that? Um, sunny skies. We have health here and wealth and prosperity. We can do whatever we want in our country. It's beautiful living in Brisbane. And so when I think about the day of the Lord, I mean, I don't know if this is your experience, but my journey thinking about God returning and Judgment Day growing up, I put conditions on Jesus returning. Right, so, so I want him to return, but only after this happens. Right, so, so uh, one of the first experiences for, for me in this was um, when I got my driver's license. You know, in that moment, it's so exciting being able to drive for the first time. Yes, God, come back, but do it after I can have freedom and drive by myself for a couple of months. You know, that, that, like I wanted it to come back, but I also want to drive. I mean, it, then time goes on, we have, we got, Elizabeth and I got married, and you know, God, we want you to come back, but can you just give us like six months of marriage, right? And then, then after that, come back, right? I've never been married. <laughs> Let me experience that and then come back. Now, I mean, we just go on holidays, and so God, come back, but please don't come back before our holiday, right? We got four weeks lined up, come back after the holiday, and then we'll be sweet. That will be great. Now, I'm not the only one who feels like this, right? Surely, Surely I'm not, because I think this is our experience in Australia. God, come back, but come back after the relationship I'm about to start. Come back after the job I'm about to start. Come back after the pay rise that I'm working to. Come back after my car starts losing value or, you know, the market's crashed where my house is. Come back after that stuff, but right now I'm pretty good. Bit different to the, pe uh, the people Peter's writing to. See, see the people, the, the original audience at Peter, you know, where they would have got this letter, these Christians are living in the time of Nero. Nero was an, our Roman empire, uh, emperor. And Nero is famous for a bunch of different stuff. But one of the things that he's known for is um, he, he used to have garden parties where he would burn Christians for entertainment. Right? So just kind of let that evil, the level of evil that we're talking about there, right, just sink in. So you don't just have Nero, who's obviously like killing people for fun, 
and burning them at parties, but the people gathered around watching that, entertained by that, celebrating Christians screaming to their death. And Peter says here, right, when we hear Peter's words in light of them, he's saying to those people who may have lost family or friends being burnt to death at a party for entertainment, God's not forgotten. God's not slow to act. And the injustice and the evil that you experience, God will deal with. He will deal with that, but he will do that on the day of the Lord. He will do that on the final judgment. You can trust, you can bank on the fact that God will deal with the evil that you experience. But the reason he hasn't is because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is being patient and his patience leads to salvation. That's a fair bit different to how I read that today. That context is different to someone who lives in 2019 in Australia But it's not that different to how some Christians are living right now in the world. The persecuted church are living this right now. So so a few months ago now, we had a guy from Open Doors come. This is a mission agency that we support that goes and helps uh, mission the message of Jesus go out to the hardest places in the world. And if you jump on their website, you can find the top 50 uh, persecuted churches, the places where uh, around the world right now, it is the hardest to be a Christian. So I just want to highlight the top three for us Uh, this morning uh, for the hardest places that it is to be in the world. Number one, uh, the hardest place to be in the world is maybe unsurprising, it's North Korea. North Korea have a population of over 25 million, an estimate of 300,000 Christians are in that population of 25 million. It's illegal to be a Christian there, and Christians memorize Bible verses and then destroy the Bible. Because if they're caught with the Bible, they'll face persecution for that. If someone is discovered to be a Christian, without any trial, they're put into labor camps, they're tortured, or they're killed on the spot. There is extreme pressure and violence in all of life for our Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea. Coming in at number two is Afghanistan. Population of 36 million people, so a bit higher, 11 million more than North Korea, but only an estimate of 1,000 Christians in Afghanistan. Again, it's illegal to be a Christian. In fact, officially, there are no Christians in Afghanistan because those who are are Christians in hiding. There's not enough of them to gather to make a church, so they only gather in small groups. And if you are, if Christianity is confirmed, you're either killed on the spot or in Afghanistan, you're put into a mental institution. That's what it's like to be a Christian in Afghanistan. Or number three was Somalia. Somalia, 15 million population, but an estimate of only 100 Christians. There's more than 100 of us in this room. But in Somalia, that's all of the Christians that live there. Christians are persecuted. All of those who are Christians have been converted from Islam. And because of the deep Islamic roots from the community and the family, they are persecuted because of their faith. And once again, if Christianity is confirmed, they are killed. This is the context in which Christians live right now around the world. Now, if we can read Peter's words in light of them, in light of our brothers and sisters in North Korea who right now are in labor camps or being tortured 
or killed. If we can read this in light of those in Afghanistan, the thousand Christians who don't get to do church this morning and might face persecution or suffering or be in a mental institution right now, if we can read this in light of the 100 Somalians who, if they're found out to be a Christian this week, will be killed, let's read it in light of them. God is saying to the persecuted church, God's not forgotten you. God is not slow to act. He will deal with the injustice you face. God sees it. He knows what they're going through. He's with them. And Peter's words are life to them. God has not forgotten you. God is with you. And one day he will deal with the injustice you face. But the reason he hasn't is because he is patient. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's patience leads to salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I read it in light of the persecuted church, I am convicted to the core. Because when I think about it, right, God isn't enduring with unimaginable injustice to his kids. God isn't enduring with the evil of that's being forced out upon our brothers and sisters around the world. God isn't dealing with their suffering and putting up with it so that I can have a better life. Right? God's not putting up with injustice so that I can have more money. God's not putting up with evil so that I can have more comfort and live the comfortable, comfortable vision where I can dream my comfortable dreams and then act them out and live the great Australian dream. That's not why God is enduring with this suffering, with the injustice that he sees and that he knows. No, the reason that God is enduring with this is because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So when we pull it all together, the reason we are here today, the reason we're here in 2019 in August in Australia is for the purpose of mission. The reason we are here in 2019 in August in Australia is for the purpose of people coming to know Jesus. I told you at the start mission was the best one. I told you it was the most important one. It's the very reason we exist. God is enduring with suffering and evil and the injustice of his own children for the sake of salvation. He wants people to know Jesus and be saved. So in light of this, in light of the fact that God hasn't returned but one day will, in light of the fact that God's patience leads to salvation, what does this mean for us? Now, my hope is that this means so many different things. My hope is that this transforms us and change us, changes us and gives us a burden for mission. But today I've got six things for what it means for us. Six things for what it means for us as a church that God is being patient and patience leads to salvation. Number one, the first thing it means for us is that God is being patient with you. God is being patient with you. If you are here today and you're not sure about Jesus, man, I, I know that this is maybe, an over, maybe a bit overwhelming, right? Hearing some dude just yell about the day of the Lord for 30 minutes, right? Maybe that's a bit overwhelming, but I hope you can see the deep message. God loves you. God is for you. And God doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to know Jesus. And God is being patient with you. 
God is being patient with you wherever you're at in that journey. But recognize that one day, the day of the Lord will come. And on that day, either we will face the judgment for our own sin, the judgment for the evil that we've committed, or else we'll hide in Jesus. Those are the two options, but God loves you. He's for you, and He wants you to know Him. We would love to help you with wherever you're at in that journey. That's number one, God is being patient with us. Number two, we are committed as a church to mission. We are passionate about mission. And not as individuals, not just as individuals, we'll get to that a little bit later, but as a church, right? We as a church want to make and grow disciples, and making disciples is a key part of that. So we are passionately engaged in mission. And this is where the ecosystem comes in, right? Whether we are on mission, like Jenny was pointing out before, whether we have friends or whether we are part of the church and doing community and membership well, or we are serving people, whatever else, we, as the ecosystem works, we are passionately engaged in mission. Number two, we are, right? We are as a church. We are about mission. We are about making disciples. Number three, we are driven by spiritual reality. We aren't driven by physical realities of what's in front of us. We are driven by the fact that heaven and hell are real. We are driven by the fact that those outside of Jesus will face the just punishment for their sin and eternity in hell but that God gives us a hope in Jesus. We are as a church driven by the spiritual realities of heaven and hell. Number four, we are convicted that God is saving people. Number four, we are convicted to, that God is saving people. I don't care what your social media tells you or the media will tell us. We are convicted that God is saving people because God is bigger and more powerful and the reason we exist is because God is saving people. We are convicted by this. In fact, in a few weeks' time, we're going to have the baptism of one of our young adults celebrating the fact that God saved her. God is saving people. I mean, I was talking to Scott just a moment ago. He was saying three weeks ago, his brother called him out of the blue and said, I'm pretty sure I've become a Christian. God is saving people. We are convicted by this. And when we say things like, you know, we have a 1% vision that we want uh, 1,000 people to gather here, that we want to do this service four times over, Right? We are not like, this is not like you know, an optimistic thing that has no chance of becoming a rea reality. No, we're convicted by this. And not only that, from a mission perspective, not only would I like to see a thousand people gathered here, but I'd like to see a thousand people converted. And then when we see that, that we would re-look at that and go bigger and further because this is what God is doing. This is why we exist. And we are convicted that God is saving people. Number five, we live with an urgency. Number five, we live with an urgency. Since these things are true, since God is being patient, since we are a church on mission, since we are driven by the spiritual realities of heaven and hell, since we are convicted that God is saving people, we live with an urgency. Now, this is something Ross talked about a few weeks ago, where he used this illustration of the cruise ship and the lifeboat. Right? If you weren't here with us, he talked about how here as a church, we aren't, we aren't a cruise ship right, where you can come and put your feet up and get served, but we are a lifeboat. We are a lifeboat because we have the life-giving message of Jesus, that there is no other name which can save. We are a lifeboat. We are passionately engaged in mission. But I don't know what you thought about when Ross put that picture of the cruise ship up on the screen. But for me, I was reminded of a moment in history where a cruise ship became, in a sense, a lifeboat, right? I thought of the Titanic. And in 1912, 
the Titanic, right? If you're not sure about what it is, I'm going to spoil the movie for you. Hit an iceberg. It was meant to be indestructible. It was the first and greatest cruise ship that there ever was, you know, where you could go on and be comfortable and live your, you know, dream your dreams and live out your dreams on that cruise ship. But it hit an iceberg. Now, if you can remember uh, the movie or, or if you can just imagine it, uh, what happened once people knew that the ship was sinking? You remember what took place? There was mayhem, right? It was nuts. People were freaking out. And the reason they were freaking out is because something shifted. There was a paradigm shift. They realized, no longer am I living in comfort, but now I am in a situation of danger, Their paradigm shifted because they realized no longer am I here to have the greatest life ever, but that if I don't get to a lifeboat, I'm going to die. And not only was it that, but it was let's get everyone that we can to a lifeboat. Now, now as I was watching that, you know, seeing Ross put that picture up and thinking about that, I thought about, you know, if you can kind of picture it on the Titanic and, you know, before they hit the iceberg, if people, you know, they go out for dinner in the restaurants as you do, on those cruise ships and, you know, they're sitting down and they order, you know, the the T-bone steak or whatever. They sit there, they order, and then as they're, you know, the waiter goes away, they feel the ship rock a little bit, wonder what that is, but, you know, obviously they don't know anything, so they keep sitting there. And then, you know, someone comes in and tells them, we've been hit by it, We, we hit an iceberg, the ship is going down. And they respond in that moment. And they say, listen, we know, right, we hear you, want to affirm that the ship is going down, but I'm waiting for my food. And so uh, we're just going to get the T-bone and then we'll, we'll come to the lifeboat later. Now, what are you doing in that moment? Right, for me, in that moment, I'm kind of looking at the people and going, okay, I no longer care about you, but we've got people here that we've got to get onto a lifeboat. There are children waiting outside this rest. We've got to get people to the lifeboat. We've got to get everyone that we can to the lifeboat because the ship is going down. So if you can, forget about yourself for a moment and the meal, but actually just get on board and help us. And by that stage, their steaks come out, and they've eaten the bad bit of the T-bone, and they're up to the good bit. And they've eaten all their salad, and it's just the chips and the good bit of the T-bone left, and they say, listen, we will help, but right now I've got a bit going on. And I'd love to help you get people to the lifeboat, but right now, I'm j- it just doesn't work for me. Come back in a little while, and then we'll, we'll, do it. we'll talk then. Now, as I think about that for me, that's provocative. There have been moments in my life where I have been sitting there at the table, challenged to do mission, challenged to do something, anything, and said, I, I will, but right now I've just got some stuff going on. The church is not a cruise ship. We're not here simply to have a good time. We're not here to put our feet up. We're not here to be as comfortable as we possibly can while we watch the rest of our community go to hell. This is a lifeboat. We have the message of Jesus. We have the only thing that can save. And so we need to live with this urgency. Peter said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We don't know when that's coming. So we need to live now with the urgency that God's word encourages us to live with.
We live now with the urgency of knowing the day of the Lord is coming. So number five, we live with urgency. And then number six, we are committed to mission as individuals. We're not just committed and passionate about this as a church. We are committed as individuals. Throughout this series, we've been working through the core commitments of someone who calls Southside their home. Someone who says, yes, I'm a member. This church is mine. I'm a member of this church. We've been looking at the core commitments of someone who does that. Last week, we looked at magnification. But this week, we're looking at the core commitments for us as individuals here at Southside. And here are those core commitments for us as individuals. At Southside, the expectation is that every member would wholeheartedly say, I will seek to live on mission by being involved in the lives of non-Christians and sharing the gospel with them at every opportunity and by praying for five non-Christians each year, inviting them to church when and where appropriate. Now, I, again, I don't know what your gut reaction to that is. Right? What, what you feel, what your thoughts are. It's interesting, a few weeks ago, we had growth group and we were looking through the core commitments. And we were talking about, you know, what does this mean? What doesn't this mean? You know, what are we doing here with these things? This, this one came up and we were, you know, wrestling with the challenge of this and whatever. And so we ended up breaking into pairs and, and going, okay, so, so what strikes you the most? And let's talk about that. And um, I broke um, into a group with uh, Bill, um, our, one of the guys, Billy. And um, we've been, you know, he's been serving at youth for, for ages, for someone I respect and love. And asked Bill what, you know, he thought about these core commitments and what strikes him. And he pointed to these ones. And in a moment there, my heart sank because I was like, okay, I like Bill and I respect Bill, but this ha- he's got a problem with this. What's the problem going to be with this? Am I going to have to relook at these or, you know, what is it? So in a moment of, n- I was nervous and worried and and then said, okay, so what, what strikes you in this? And, and he said, this is a challenge to me, right? The challenge to me to um, be involved in the lives of non-Christians and share the gospel with them. And every, it's a challenge to pray for five non-Christians and to be inviting them to church when and where appropriate. But he said, if I've got a problem with this, the problem is not that these are too big, but that these commitments to be on mission are too small. That's good, Bill. (laughs) Nearly let out an amen in that moment while everyone else is in there, right? How good is that? And, And my hope is that as we work through this, as we see what God is doing, as we see that the day of the Lord is coming, as we see the reason that he hasn't dealt with the injustice, the reason he endures with what he sees happening throughout the world is because he's being patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. His patience leads to salvation. When we see that, when we are convicted by that, when we recognize that we are passionate as a church about mission, that God is saving people, when we are driven by spiritual realities of heaven and hell, that when we see these core commitments for us as individuals, not only will we as a church own this, But we too would look in light of God's word and say, the only problem that I have is that these commitments are too small. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that there is hope. God, we are thankful that when we think about the world that we live in and the problems that exist, that you are not a God who doesn't see what's happening. God, you know. 
God, we thank you that the day of the Lord is coming. And yet, as we reflect on this, it, it does make us feel uneasy because it's good news and it's, it's bad news. But God, as we reflect on what we are convicted by, we are grateful for your patience. We are thank you, thankful that you are saving people and that your patience leads to salvation. May we as a church, Lord, be burdened by this. May we be burdened by what you are burdened by. And may what breaks your heart break ours. God, put within us a deep longing and fire for the gospel and for people to know the gospel message of Jesus. There is no other name that can save. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.